I think it's time to begin. <laughs> this evening, what I'm going to talk to you about is uh, generosity and equanimity, and just mention a tiny bit more about gentle joy, appreciative joy, as well. Let me tell you something just to start with, which is uh, in Africa. I have a particular way of trapping monkeys. Um, they have quite a number of ways, but this is one particular way of trapping monkeys. And what they do is, in the forest, in the jungle, they lay down tar. And what the monkey does, it steps in the tar and goes, can't get out. So it puts its hand down in order to pull its foot out. And now its hand is stuck. And then it puts its other foot in to try and pull out both its hand and its foot. And then it puts his other foot hand in, and you can guess what's happening, he's completely stuck now, and to try and get both the hands and the feet free, he puts his head down and tries to pull out. This is one really stuck monkey by this time. <laughs> that is us. <laughs> we're really stuck. Uh, and what we're stuck in is all those things I mentioned to you last night. Remember what I said, we are stuck in... Things like judgment, prejudice, envy, jealousy, boredom. It's quite a litany, isn't it, really, when you think about it. Just like the monkey, all the monkey had to do initially, instead of putting its hand down to try and pull it pour out, is actually to grab hold of something and pull its foot out. What's recommended in the texts is basically that we, in a sense, use mudita, or appreciative joy to pull ourselves out from this stuckness. And that's what we're essentially we're doing. We're extricating ourselves from this feeling of being bound and completely stuck. Because if you've ever, if you've ever experienced any of these emotions, which you know, I presume you have some point in time, that you've experienced some of these emotions... Um, then you are probably very well aware of just how admired in them you can feel, just how stuck in them, how claustrophobic they can feel as well. So mudita, this gentle joy, this appreciative joy, is one way of extricating ourselves out from these psychological negative emotions that we can feel entrapped within. Um, and in fact, in many ways, this is what we're exploring with the use of the full Brahma Viharas, with, with metta, friendliness, compassion, karuna, with mudita and with upekka, with obviously gentle joy and with equanimity. We're exploring ways of getting out of this rather stuck, confused state that we're often in. The diagnosis that the Buddha makes initially is one of confusion, in a sense, um, a lot of the problems stem, as some of you will well know if you've read Buddhist texts or even just popular books on Buddhism, stems from something which the Buddha terms either ignorance or delusion. Yeah, he uses both terms and they're kind of interchangeable in the original languages. We are, in a sense, producing a psychology of delusion. It's coming out of delusion. It's coming out of other things as well, but delusion is primary. It's creating a world of confusion for us. 
us. It's like being placed somewhere and not really knowing our ways around very well because we haven't got the map in order to trace our way across the terrain. It's exactly that kind of feeling. It's not that we are bad people, and I do want to emphasize that. All the things that we do, the negative emotions and the stuff that arises and our responses to life does not make us bad people at all. It's just we get habitualized to certain responses, certain ways of doing things. And these four practices, I know we're only practicing two this weekend, but these four practices are ways of extricating ourselves. Extricating ourselves from this habitual, bound ways of behavior. The habitual, bound ways of behavior that we fall into again and again and again because they are so familiar to us. We know them. They're familiar friends. You know, we all know envy and jealousy and stuff like that and anger and irritation. And they're all arising. Um, you know, they rise just like that at a drop of a hat. We don't need to think about them. They just come to us. They're kind of our responses to often what life throws at us. In many ways, and I'm going to get on to this in a few minutes, in many ways equanimity, if you like, is the goal of the Buddhist path. <laughs> it's the goal of the Buddhist path. To move through life lightly is a wonderful way of describing equanimity. Um, moving through life lightly without the vicissitudes of life impacting so much on you, it sends you into disarray, um, which is often what happens, isn't it? It's the vicissitudes of life which are impinging on us, which cause us to be in this disturbed state of not being able to cope a lot of the time. So out of this kindness arises and love arises compassion, out of the compassion arises Equanimity, the two in a sense are a bit like sort of two hayricks put together holding each other up. The equanimity focuses on the joy of life as a lovely antidote to focusing on the sorrow of life. And if you get too blasé and just focus on the, on the joyful things, then the antidote to that is focusing on the sorrow in life. So there are good ways of balancing each other they manifest in the perfect balance of equanimity. And really, if you want to have a very, very good definition of equanimity, it means to lead a balanced life. In modern terms, from the Buddha's perspective, I mean, these are not terms he would ever use himself because they're not part of his culture, but we're completely unbalanced. Our responses to life are very unbalanced. They're often over the top. You know, we respond. I don't know if you've ever noticed sometimes when we respond to those minor things with absolute irritation and anger and frustration and all sorts of passionate emotions. And to the actual fact of what's occurred, the response seems excessive. And equanimity is learning in a way not to respond to things in that form. I just want to go back a second and trace our way back into Medita through the avenue of giving, which is the avenue which is known actually in Pali's Chaga, generosity, the actual whole path of generosity. In Many of you will know there are two major traditions which are still existent in, in Buddhism. One which is found generally in Sri Lanka, Burma and Thailand, a little bit in Laos and Cambodia. 
known as the Theravada. And the Theravada has this as its primary mode of practice. In fact, many Eastern teachers, and the Mahayana has it as well, which is the northern schools, the Tibetan, the Chinese, the Japanese. And they have something which is called the perfections, things that you have to perfect, and there's six of them in life. And they all arise initially out of the perfection of generosity. It's very interesting how this... Um, Many Eastern teachers, um, whilst applauding what happens in the West, are rather confused when they come over here, because they see lots of people practicing meditation, sometimes a bit of morality, but hardly any generosity. And actually the path stems out of generosity, arises into morality, and eventually ends up in meditation. So it's a kind of different, we've got it topsy-turvy, we've got it upside down a lot of the time. Now, now, generosity here is exactly what you've been engaging in. Being generous to others in their joys, you know, no matter whether you like them, or whether you dislike them, or whether you feel completely neutral about them. You know, this is the whole purpose. The other practices, which are the precursors to this, also engage that. So you extend your feelings of kindness and love and friendliness to all equally. You do this with compassion, and you do it with this particular practice, the practice of appreciative joy or gentle joy. You extend it equally, without bias, without prejudice, without the kind of prejudice which is naturally involved in a lot of our judgments in life. So it's non-prejudicial giving. <laughs> it's giving in a way which is, which is not determinate by the like or the dislike. If I wanted to put it perhaps in more Western terms, this is a generosity of spirit which is there. It's not just about material things. And let's face it, in the West we're kind of hung up on this stuff, on material stuff. It's not just that. It is that, but it's a lot more than that. It's actually a giving of oneself, giving time sometimes, giving energy, and giving of things like love and compassion and the giving, of course, of joy and appreciation of somebody else's happiness, even if one isn't in that condition yourself. This is what I call a charity of the heart. And all of these mark directions of the heart. In fact, there is no difference in Pali and Sanskrit between the word for heart and mind. It's both one word. It's called chitta, which both means heart and mind. And it's very important that we hear that, because it is a movement of heart-mind towards others, as we open towards others in this way. So generosity is absolutely fundamental as a way of moving through life. When we are niggardly, when we are miserly with ourselves, let alone kind of things that we possess and whatever we have, but when we are miserly with ourselves and we don't give. And one has to bear in mind, of course, this can occur even when called upon for help by others, not you know, indirectly as well as directly, when we're called upon. Um, sometimes even our so-called religious practice, our, our meditative practice, if you don't want to call it religious at all, which I hesitate to do anyway, even our meditative practice can be a way of cutting ourselves off, and it's not meant to, it's meant to get us in touch. Um, I sometimes have heard people say things like, and I'm just giving you an example, oh, I can't possibly see you tonight, I have my practice to do. <laughs> You know, this site might be somebody who's in distress. Yeah. So one has to bear in mind 
that what we're doing in the formal practice is actually a training for opening on to the world and being with others in true and genuine relationship. And if it cuts us off, it's not working. (laughs) It really is not working. Working, when it's working, it's movement towards the other in in this spirit of generosity that I've tried to indicate to you. It's just so fundamental to the Buddhist path. Um, generosity is absolutely a central feature of all of Buddhist activity, you know, both lay and monastic. You know, in all cultures is this idea of giving, giving of the teachings, giving of you know, what you have to give. And if it's only time, then you give that as well. And if it is only um, a positive emotion towards somebody, I'm saying only, <laughs> as if it's kind of quite small it isn't of course we can all generate positive emotions towards others we can all give in that way and you'll be surprised at how it changes the world yeah? these methods, these emotions, these moods which in a sense is what they are they are moodedness the way we can come into, into a particular mood of generosity a mood of equanimity a mood of joyfulness at others' at others' happiness, and so on and so forth. These are ways of colouring the world. They're ways of seeing the world. They're not kind of optional extras. (laughs) And it's really important that we hear this. So much was um, the spirit of generosity um, established in Buddhist cultures when the tsunami hit Thailand. Thailand didn't call on any external aid to help it. It actually generated all of the aid internally. You know, out of its own culture, because they have this naturalized form of giving within that culture. So generosity, in a sense, is the beating heart, shall we say. Generosity is the beating heart of all of the things that we're attempting to develop. If you do longer retreats and you do something like the, the metta, you know, the development of kindness and love towards others, and compassion, and mudita, you know, this gentle joy, then you are developing, you know, through the beating heart of generosity, something which is really, really important in this world. They are, you know, all too rare, shall we say. They are jewels, they are gems within this world. And you recognize them, and you feel them when you come across them, when you meet them, when you meet that spirit of generosity in another. And and I'm sure we've all done it. And they can't, don't have to appear in spiritual situations, they can appear in quite ordinary situations, and this is when we learn from the ordinariness of all of this. In a way, this is the whole of the spiritual path is extraordinary. <laughs> That's all it is, is trying to get back to something which is there within us. In the um, Buddhist psychological literature that you find, and I won't go on about it because it's quite dense and quite difficult to read a lot of it, but in the psychological literature there, it basically shows the mind as a mixture of wholesome factors and unwholesome factors. And what we're attempting to do is develop those wholesome factors. Actually, to use the word that I used last night that's generally used for meditation, we're attempting to cultivate them, to grow them, you know, you've got to come along with your watering can every so often and water them and nurture them and pull out the weeds, yeah. uh, which are going to inhibit their growth. And the weeds that inhibit their growth, of course, are the tendency to fall back into unwholesome states of mind. You know, 
They're known. They're so familiar to us, aren't they? The unwholesome states of mind. The wholesome states of mind are there. We see them. We often see them in situations of, of familial life. You know, <coughs> extension towards friends. So we, we do have love. We do have compassion. We do appreciate the joys of others. Um, but we do it in a very small circumscribed circle. You know, in a circumscribed area. And so it's only extended to very few. What this opening of the heart, that's in a sense really indicative of the Buddhist path is doing, is extending it to others, to many, many others. Not just your small small circle of family and friends, but getting it out into the world. In other words, what it's also doing is developing a quality that you already have. You're not trying to import, trying to develop something which you haven't got. We all have it. You all have it. The Dalai Lama is very fond of saying, uh, most people, and I think I mentioned this to you last night, most people have good intentions. Nearly everybody has that goodness of heart. We just don't see it manifest that often. We don't manifest it ourselves that often. You know, so it's this development, as again the Dalai Lama puts it, of the good heart in life. Yeah. This ability to be with others in this much, much more open, receptive way. When we look at the world, and I'm really moving, starting to move into equanimity, when we look at the world, one of the things that chiefly characterizes the world and something the Buddha speaks about again and again and again and again is change impermanence. Change and impermanence are the inescapable facts about what is around us. What is around us. Even in the Buddha's time, they couldn't quite get it. When he speaks about change, and ultimately, of course, for beings like ourselves, death, which is the end result of change, um, none of us will escape it. Absolutely none of us. I had this kind of really forcibly brought home to me a couple of years back. Then I had this program on television. Some of you might have seen it, which was a whole series of old films made in Britain about 107, 108 years ago, movie films of just ordinary people. And what you're actually looking at was a ghost landscape. Because nothing in those photographs, in those films, was alive now. So death is an inescapable fact. But somehow we don't take it on board. We don't take on board what I'm calling the vicissitudes of life in terms of the changes that occur to us and the changes that go on around us. We don't deal with it very effectively. We often resist, attempt to stabilise. We look for something which is an absolute illusion called security. Come across that one? (laughs) Looking for security? Looking for a solid ground? I often joke about this and say, when you think about it, it's the British invented insurance <laughs> to actually try and create a sense of security. And I'm not knocking it because it has its uses, but it's this attempt to find security in an unstable, insecure world. It's a very, very insecure world. And of course, death is the final insecurity. Yeah. It's something which is going to happen to us, but something we really, really don't, most of us, take on board that well. Um, even in the Buddha's time, in something called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the sutta about the events leading up to the Buddha's death when he's aged 80, 
and the Buddha has announced his attendant, Ananda. Ananda is, is rather... A, he's kind of the fall guy in all of the texts. He's rather sort of bumbling. Um, he doesn't quite get it somehow. And in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, um, he's leaning on the doorpost, weeping and wailing because the Buddha is going to die. And the Buddha goes up to him and says, haven't I been teaching for something like 45 years that all things change, all things die? Because in a sense, he hasn't got it. And in a way, in a sense, Ananda represents everyone. He's representative of all of us. That somehow we know, but we don't know. We understand, of course, intellectually, that there is death and there is change, but in a sense we don't know. You know we don't take it on board. It doesn't become an embodied knowledge. It doesn't, isn't something which changes our life as such. Tibetans are very fond of a particular phrase, which is one thing is certain, which is death, and there is one thing is absolutely uncertain. When? <laughs> you know, and that's meant to be not a morbid kind of obsession with things, obsession with death, but an actual way of trying to get you to focus and to do something now and not put off, because we're all great prevaricators, to put off till tomorrow what we can do today. But change is written into everything that's around us. I mean, this becomes one of the defining facts for the Buddha of the way things are. And for most of us, of course, the very fact of change, when it happens to us, no matter how much we're trying to resist it, well, what does it become? It becomes pain. It becomes dissatisfaction. It sometimes, and of course, will become tragedy. It's that thing which you can't keep at bay. It will obtrude into your life. It will rupture any sense of security that you have. So better, in a way, to have taken it on board now, rather than to leave it as the cataclysmic event which it can be. In one of the poems of Rilke, he said, let us be ahead of all of our partings. In other words, almost already visited it. That is something we could aspire to, in a way, to be ahead of our partings. Not to devalue what is here, what is now, what is present, but to see it as being impermanent, to see it as changed. Now, in a way, the reason why I'm saying all this about impermanence is because impermanence is one of the things we can't deal with, but with the equanimous mind... The equanimous mind is the mind which can take on board those changes, the changes which are going on all of the time around us, that we resist in that search for security. Even our own feelings about something don't remain the same. Have you noticed that? They simply don't remain the same. In, In Buddhist kind of thought, there are only three basic feelings, and these are not emotions. You either like something, you dislike something, or you feel neutral about it. Can you think of any others? <laughs> That's it, I'm afraid. Uh, but they change, they don't remain stable. They don't remain stable. Something you perhaps liked in childhood, you know, for example, something that was sweet and sticky, and that perhaps now as an adult you don't like. Yeah. Something you disliked, has become neutral, you no longer strongly dislike it. And as long as we live 
those things will continue to change for us. They won't remain the same. Um, even our feelings are changing. Even our you know, very attitude to the world is a changing attitude toward the, towards the world, as I say. And why I'm trying to make that clear is because there is nothing stable within us, let alone the world. There is nothing fixed. There is no fixed point around which everything revolves. Everything is in process. As I've been trying to make clear to many of the groups when I teach here, the self in Buddhism is a verb. It's not a thing. You know, it's a thing, it's something that's always in process. It's not a fixed entity. Um, yet, yet, we're always searching, no matter how subtly, for the fixed still point. <laughs> And it doesn't matter, you might have a great deal of acquaintance with Buddhist practice and theory and everything else, but still be driven to search for securities. Yeah. Even just little ones. You know. And really the big liberation is the liberation of searching for anything stable within this world. Because there is nothing stable within this world. Um, Chögyam Trungpa, who is a, a Tibetan teacher who taught in America for many, many years, um, had a wonderful title of a book of his which was called The Wisdom of Insecurity yeah, because that is the only wisdom in a sense that we can have is about insecurity all of us are insecure we are not on fixed ground we are not fixed the world is not fixed any attempt to build security is like trying to build you know, solid walls on shifting sands yeah. so let's make that clear this is the reason why of course, why I'm saying it's so important to see how things actually are. And this is the purport of the Buddha's message, is to see things how they actually are and to then take them on board. So whatever happens, whether it's the big change or the little change, the good thing or the bad thing, we hold equally in our minds and don't value one more than the other, don't rail against one and reject the other. Now one of the phrases I've been using over the weekend, as you've heard me constantly saying, probably getting fed up with it by now, but don't grasp after anything and don't reject anything. Look at whatever arises in your field of awareness, you know, non-judgmentally, where we're not grasping after it, where you're simply seeing it for what it is. And it will transmute and it will change because the mind is evanescent. It's, it's movement. It's, it's kind of... Sometimes it always reminds me a bit like those bubbles that children blow. <laughs> That's the mind, just blowing bubbles in that way, with nothing solid to them whatsoever, apart from the solidity that we impute to them and give them. Now what happens, of course, in judgmental forms, in our normal daily life, is that with... Like arises grasping, arises craving for something. If I like it, it's like that syndrome, it's almost the, the syndrome, if there's something I like and I feel it's doing me good, an awful lot more, make me a lot better. <laughs> Try doing that with chocolate. <laughs> you know, the first bite is okay, you know, keep doing it. <laughs> you just end up feeling rather ill. So craving you know, basically brings on illness. <laughs> it's a symptom, if you like, of our disease in this world, um, that we don't feel at ease in the world. 
what happens with the negative side of it, the, the dislike? So that's the liking. I tend to gravitate towards the things I like and, of course, move as quickly away as possible from the things I dislike. Yeah. I'm moving away from them. The person coming down the street I don't like, just on his immediate impression. Cross over the other side. Try to avoid them. Yeah. So actually, a lot of our life is spent in avoidance. Even Sigmund Freud, you know, the founder of psychoanalysis, you know, he talked about something called the pleasure principle. In it. And the pleasure principle was simply the avoidance of pain. <laughs> That's all it was. It was nothing to do with pleasure, really. <laughs> it was just a simple avoidance of pain. And in a way, that's what we're trying to do. But unfortunately, you can't avoid pain. You can't keep running away from it. Because, as the Buddha made very clear, there is something called old age, sickness and death. (laughs) So you're not going to avoid it. So how are you going to deal with it when it comes to you? You There was a great, and I've said this many times in this room before, probably on tape all over the place, (laughs) but... There was a great spoof movie poster in a, in a magazine which is called Tricycle, which is an American magazine devoted to Buddhism. Some of you might have seen it. It's like the movie posters that you see in America. And it said, coming to you soon. Old age, sickness, death. <laughs> <laughs> and it really brings it home, because it is. You know, life is short. It's very, you know, it's very fragmentary. It's very brief. Um, yet we don't take on board that. So when the sickness comes, when we age, not when, every day we're aging. Yeah. From the moment we're born, we're aging. From that moment onwards. You know, so how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to you know, um, cope with these very simple existential facts? These are not hypotheticals. These are actualities. How are we going to deal with them? Well, the Buddha's recommendation is that we have to deal with the way things are, as they actually are. So in other words, we have to take them on board extremely seriously. And as I say, not to make us morbid, not to brood on it, but simply in order to generate movement in our lives, to changing the ways that we hold many of the things that occur to us in life, which will also include, eventually, old age, sickness and death. So, the world is not going to change. Well, it is, (laughs) because that's what it's doing. (laughs) But in its changingness, it's not going to change. In a sense, that's the paradox of it, isn't it? But... um, it's changing, but in a sense that fact of change is not going to change. Um, so we have to come to grips with it in some way or another. And the only way we can do that is by transforming our minds. Now obviously the first three patterns, the first three strategies, if you like, within um, the Brahma Viharas, within these usually called sublime abodes or divine dwellings. There's all sorts of translations for these. These are helping us to transform our way of being in the world. They're the antidotes to many of the negative qualities that we see. So we develop love instead of hatred and compassion instead of hatred and aversion. And we develop a feeling of 
joy instead of resentment and avarice and all the things I've listed and I won't go into again. There's no point in going into them again. So we're trained, trying to transform the mind so that the mind can hold what happens to us, be it the joys, be it the sufferings, equally. And the practice of mudita is about that, being able to hold equally what happens to us and not rail against the negative or what we perceive as being the negative, such as being ill. You know? Most of us get pretty miserable and grumpy, don't we, when we get ill? <laughs> you know, often say, you know, well, I've got this cold, why don't I feel so rotten? <laughs> Even if we're not saying it to each other, we're saying it to ourselves usually. I'm feeling extremely miserable about the whole affair. Um, but also all the other stuff that happens, the, the lesser things of life. The minor inconveniences. Have you ever noticed the world isn't for us? We act as if it is. It's just for us. Why didn't that come on time? Why didn't it do this? Why... (laughs) And get all this stuff. Actually, if you ever go to India, you find that things don't happen exactly as they're supposed to. It's a wonderful teaching. A wonderful teaching. Now, let me tell you a very humorous story. I've conveyed this again sometimes in here. But um, one time we had somebody who flew in from Geneva when I was living in India. Um, and Geneva's like, as you probably know, the perfect kind of Swiss city. And he came into Delhi. And three days, he was cracking up in Delhi because nothing works. Everything is chaos. People drive up the street the wrong way. So you have to look in both directions to stop from being run over. Um, by three days, this person was getting extremely anxious. So we decided, we said, okay, look, what we'll do is we'll put you on the train to Dharmasala, which is where the Tibetans live up in northern India. Um, we'll take you up to New Delhi Station, and there's an overnight sleeper, first class. We even brought you a first class sleeper. Went down to the station, found the sleeper, put him on board, stood on the platform, waving him goodbye. And the train pulled out and left the carriage behind. (laughs) That is a true story. (laughs) I was there. (laughs) So you can't always expect things to happen as they should. (laughs) Being the moral doubt, we are normally expecting things to happen this way, don't we? We live in a culture um, where we expect things to happen as they should, and often they don't. We rail against get stuck in traffic. We rail if the train doesn't arrive on time. We rail if somebody doesn't phone us back exactly when they said they were going to. You know, in the days of email culture, we're getting even shorter fused about you know, um, you know people responding to us immediately um, because of the immediacy of the medium. You think you ought to get an immediate response, you know, and life isn't like that. Um, one of the things that is absolutely crucial and actually is another of the perfections in Mahayana Buddhism but is absolutely crucial to the development of this equanimous mind this mind of equanimity is patience patience is the wonderful antidote to all of the impatience that goes on in the early 70s, when I had sort of, you know, during 1972s, I'd been involved in Buddhism for about two years. 
I brought a Tibetan teacher and I was taking him through London because he didn't know his way through London. And I lived in London for a very brief period of time. And uh, I was taking him through the tube stations. And uh, one particular time, um, I spotted a tube at the bottom of the escalator. So I did the typical London thing, was I kind of belting down the escalator towards this. And he strolled down, very slowly, by which time the tube train had gone, and I was fuming at him. And he completely diffused the whole situation, because he said to me, he said, there's one thing I've noticed about these trains. One goes and another comes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which I think is a wonderful, in a sense... um, antidote to our impatience because we don't actually see what comes, what arises. Because we are so busy and intent and kind of almost blinkered in our focus about something and getting something done and over, often overestimating the importance of what it is we have to get done. What do we do? We get angry. We get irritable. We get annoyed. We get all those negative emotions arising because of it. And what can you do about it? Usually nothing. Usually nothing. So it's learning, it's learning to be in situations like that instead of immediately becoming irritated, see what else arises. See what else happens. Being stuck in a traffic jam is a perfect place for practice. It's a perfect place for practice. You know, practice mindfulness of breathing. Help to calm you down. Try sending out generous thoughts to all of those stuck in the traffic jam with you. You These are processes by which you can begin to develop a a mind which is much, much more equable in this world rather than just simply reactive. How many of us act? Very few of us act in our day-to-day existence. Most of our life is spent reacting, not acting. There is the thing that I want in the shop window. I'm just like Pavlov's dog, salivating for it. There's the person I want to be with. Focus on them. There's the person I want to avoid. Quickly move away. There is no freedom in it. We tend to think we're free. But where is the freedom in that? This is is almost just like addictive behaviour. That's all it is. There's the thing I want and I must have it. Got to have it. And if I get it, I want more of it. And the avoidance almost is almost addictive behaviour as well. This business of avoidance and craving, where we crave to avoid things as well. We don't just crave to have them. In fact, as I try to indicate to you, a lot of our life is spent in the craving to avoid, to move away from things. But they generally catch up with us at some point. We can't avoid things forever. We certainly can't avoid that big existential fact, you know, which is going to come to us all, death. How are we going to avoid it? So we have to, in a sense, hold it in mind. As I tried to make clear to the group the other day, you know, doing the long retreat here, actually death is nothing to be worried about. Death is what makes your life meaningful. If you had an immortal life, why would you choose to do anything? <laughs> yeah. Why would you choose? The reason why we choose is because we have finitude in our lives. That we know that actually our life is finite, even if we don't admit it to ourselves. Somehow, deeply, almost cellularly, we know that we are finite. So therefore, we have choice. 
all the good ones as well as the bad ones. It doesn't matter. But the only reason you choose is because you know you have a finite amount of time. That is the only reason you choose. With an infinite amount of time, why bother? <laughs> yeah. Well, I could always put it off till next century. <laughs> Something like that. You know, so what we are actually trying to do with these practices, and particularly the equanimous mind, is break the ties that bind us to compulsive behaviour. Because it is compulsive behaviour. Um, again, not a term the Buddha would ever use, but from a modern point of view, you know, and in a sense from a Buddhist point of view, we all suffer from compulsive neurotic disorders. You know, because we do the same things again and again and again and again. And the one thing we learn from history is we don't learn anything from history. <laughs> you know, from our own personal histories, often. Now, obviously, again, I'm generalising, so please you know, try and place it in your own lives and see what's going on there. But much of the time we don't actually learn, we just repeat. And we have this compulsion to repeat. We try to repeat the good things, but we also repeat the bad things in our lives. Almost as if we're programmed and you, know, you can't change the programme. Often that's to do with the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We all have these narratives, don't we? We're telling ourselves about our own lives. And we're embedded in those narratives. And if you have a particular narrative that you're holding on to, a structure, that a story you know, that I'm telling myself about myself, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy what's going to happen. Because I've already told myself what sort of person I am and what's going to happen. Yeah. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And again, this is compulsive behaviour. Yeah. We create the circumstances. We create the conditions. Now, there's a word for this in Buddhism, a word that's much misunderstood, this creating causes and conditions. It's called karma. That's all it is. It's called karma. All it means is you engage in certain actions of body, speech, and mind, you set up dispositions, and you reap the fruits. That's all it has. It's saying that every action has a consequence. Nothing other than that. Yeah. The actions have a consequence and dependent on whether the seed, if you like, and these are the metaphors which are used in the text, depends on whether the seed is wholesome, depends on whether the fruit will be wholesome. Depends on whether the seed is unwholesome, depends on whether the fruit will be unwholesome. So we set up the seeds of our own lives. You know, we actually engage in actions, and it's not just what comes out of our mouths, what we engage in physically, but it's all of the mental stuff. Because in a sense, they are the driving forces, aren't they, behind our speech acts and our actions, our bodily actions in this life. The strength of equanimity is that it can sunder these bonds. That is the strength of equanimity, of being able to hold equalities sunders the bonds of feeling compelled to do things or simply to be reactive to something. So that something arises which we normally see as unpleasant, and perhaps it is in conventional terms, but we hold it differently. We don't immediately turn it into dukkha. That's the really important point about this. From the Buddhist perspective, again, Dukkha wasn't simply the fact of something happening to you. It wasn't the fact of being ill. It wasn't the fact of getting old 
that was dukkha, it was our disposition that we took on that fact. That became the dukkha. Whether we held it in a particular way which was productive of aversion, trying to avoid it, and all of the other psychological traits which kick in when we're confronted by something like sickness, for example. Or whether we held it with a mind which didn't immediately put those things, project them onto, onto this fact that's going on. Now, all sorts of things are happening in the world. Some of them we can do something about. An awful lot we can't do anything about. Tremendous amount we can't do anything about. Natural disasters, most of them we can't do anything about. They're happening. And they will happen. Happened in the Buddha's time, and they'll happen now. We can do something with the consequences of them, but we can't necessarily stop natural disasters happening. You know? There are aspects of our lives which we can do things about, and there are aspects of our lives which we can't do anything about. We can try and maintain ourselves, for example, in health, and we still get sick. Yeah. It still comes over us. So the question always comes back to how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to understand, and how are you going to cope with these situations without automatically turning it into misery? Yeah. We're almost programmed for misery in these situations. Not just that, because there is joy, and we can see it around with the eye of mudita, with the eye of gentle joy, we can begin to perceive happiness and conditions around us which are not that. One of the things we have to learn to deal with, and this is part of the equanimous mind, is a lot of things are as they are. There's a phrase that's used in particularly some forms of Buddhism, which are, things are perfect as they are. They can't be any different to as they are. Again, the antidote to thinking that we're in control of everything. Remember that joke phrase I said, relax, nothing is under control. Because actually we think we are in control and a tremendous range of what we have to deal with in life is outside of our control. So things are as they are. They're occurring naturally as they are. And we have to learn to deal with that. We have to learn to be with that. So in a sense, you have to choose choices. The path of reactivity or the path of freedom. And that's what the Buddha is really offering. He's offering a path of freedom. The path of freedom comes through the development of an equanimous mind. A mind that deals equally. And in some situations, even if your mind is equanimous. Um, well, there's one particular passage in one of the suttas. The Buddha is saying, look, they often blame me when I don't say enough. They blame me when I say too much, and they blame me when I say nothing. <laughs> you know, so in certain situations like that, you can't avoid. <laughs> you know, so what do you do in that situation? Well, you keep the mind steady and balanced. Neither praise nor blame is actually one of the phrases. Move beyond praise or blame. To not let it disturb the balance of the mind. Whatever. So this is about leading a life of a completely balanced mind. Yeah. might sound like a big ideal at this moment but it's achievable and I think we should all make that clear for ourselves that it is an achievable goal it's not a kind of big chimera or big illusion that we are simply sort of adhering to this is something which we can all do it's a mind of balance and as I said at the beginning in a way this is the path of Buddhism 
the path to developing this. Ultimately, it involves quite a lot because it involves understanding our psychology, it involves understanding how we get in the mess we are, and then starting to unravel from that point onwards the mess. And that's what we're engaging in. So if some of you at this point in time are feeling it's difficult, it probably because it is. <laughs> and that's not to dishearten you, it's actually to be realistic. And what we're dealing with is, is difficult. It's, an, it's a very knotty, you know, it's a knotted piece of string, you know, really tangled up and tied up. That's a lot of our lives. And so in a sense we're having to unravel that tangle that we are beginning to see a little more clearly the what is going on. You know, coming back to one of the phrases I've used. You know, what is going on? See, don't ignore. Try and waken yourself up, you know, sensorily even, to the what is going on. You know, as you do your walking meditation, to walk and perceive, to be with your senses, you know, not to be all up in the head, to, to be out there, to be experiencing, as I referred to it last night, those moments of being which are there for all of us. They're free, by the way. <laughs> they don't cost anything. You know, those moments of being which we can all experience are there all the time for us. Unfortunately, we're too stupid to realise that a lot of the time. You know, when we're kind of in our own heads, obsessed with our own problems, having this wonderful world of dookering, you know, of actually creating this lovely world of misery for ourselves and then moping about it. Um, you know, get out there. Get into the world. You know, start to see things. See what's arising in the mind. It's good fun. <laughs> you know, it's good fun. I, again, I often joke about this, but you know, in a way, there's some a serious import behind it. Why watch the soap operas? If you really want to see greed, hatred and delusion, just watch your own mind. <laughs> you know? It's all going on. Everything is going on there. You know, we don't. Yeah, I'm not criticising these things, but you know what I mean. We don't have to externalise it and live it vicariously because it is all happening there. You can see it going on moment to moment to moment. You know, but we can also see other stuff going on as well. We can see the moments of compassion. We can feel the moments of gratitude. We can see the moments of generosity, which could be there and could be developed. So you have to develop a pliancy of mind to be able to perceive these things, just as we have to develop a pliancy of mind to switch our attention from our self-obsessions to being able to connect with our senses in some way. All of this makes life a lot, lot richer. A lot, lot richer. So despite the fact I emphasise a degree of difficulty to it, and I wouldn't want to underestimate that because... You know, it's not an easy task to wake ourselves up. We're used to sleeping a lot. You know, so you know, we've got to you know, get used to kind of opening an eyelid every so often uh, and peering around us. You know, perhaps it might become a habit. <laughs> you, know, you might actually want to keep your eyes open a little bit. So although I'm joking about this to a degree... There's something very serious about it. This is a real goal for all of us. We can all achieve this. It's not something which is vastly futural. As is often said in some of the texts, there's two words that are used to describe the stuckness, the situation we're in. That one word is samsara. It's derived from Pali term, Sanskrit term, which means to go round in circles. Um, the other side of that is nirvana, which actually means to be blown out. 
And what it means is the fires of greed, hatred and delusion which sustain the other bit, sangsara, have been blown out. You know? But they're not two different places. One is not a Buddhist hell and the other is not a Buddhist heaven. This is sangsara and it's nirvana, as we sit here now. Which one do you want? <laughs> That's the question. Um, and it's the question, really, if you seriously want the nirvanic experience, because nirvana is a way of being, it's not a place. It's a way of being in this world. It's a way of being in this world which has an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Instead, it has generosity, has generosity and kindness and compassion and insight in the way things go. And actually, those six roots, three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred and delusion, three wholesome roots of generosity, compassion and insight are productive of all of our psychology. And we, in a sense, have the choice. The one is the path of reactivity and the the other is the path of freedom. Mudita is, in a way, the vehicle which takes us there, along with equanimity. So both of these are the vehicles, this generous spirit towards others, and, of course, the equanimous mind, which will take the vicissitudes of life without being thrown off balance. So you have the choice. <laughs> okay, we'll open it up for a few minutes for some, for some questions, see if there's any questions. Reflections, they don't have to be questions. <laughs> Good faith. Do you think there's a value in, in thinking about things like rather than just waiting for a knowing, an intuitive knowing to do in a situation? Yeah, sometimes. It's it's not always a substitute for intuitive senses of being. But in the absence of other intuitions about the direction you want to go and the choices you want to make in life, sometimes it's good to, to weigh the pros and cons to analyse, to look at something in depth. The Buddha certainly wasn't against rationality. You know, he felt it was an important part. He felt it was an important part of the path that you, in some sense, rationally examine even the teachings. You know, because only in that way do you engage with them, you know, by rationally examining in the light of your own life, <laughs> I might say. That's the important part about it. So rationality is not... shunned in Buddhist thought it's seen as one thing it's not the entire story by any means um, but it's certainly something which is useful to engage in Um, it's not a case of please leave your brain at the meditation room door you know bring it in with you it's important it's part of the process and I'm sure you're very familiar with the phrase you know the Buddha once said you know if a man hands you a piece of gold what do you do do you take his word for it or do you go away and get it assayed yeah. The assay is the actual examination of it to see whether it is really gold or whether it's fool's gold that you've got. And so rationality is a, an important part. I think, yes, there is a room for analysis being, being the simple answer to the question.
Oops. <laughs> two at the same time. <laughs> Wait for a long time and two of them come along. <laughs> Sorry. Put you first and then. <laughs> By generating insight, knowing when it's sensible to give and when it's not. Um, remember, I used the phrase last night. This phrase is actually used in, particularly in Tibetan, when they talk about idiot compassion. <coughs> idiot compassion is a compassion that just gives indiscriminately, of knowing when it's wise to do it, for example, or how to do it, um, because there are many, many shades of compassion. Um, that can be an act in this world, you know, from the soft, gentle forms of compassion to the more dynamic forms, which are about getting it done, and sometimes, perhaps, and I might add this, shouting at somebody to getting something done because there is an urgency and there's an importance about it because it's going to create suffering and pain if it isn't done, something like that. But it's also having the intuition, the wisdom, the insight to know what resources you have for example, to be able to give. Now, sometimes we can give and we can give and give and just, as I kind of indicated last night, end up a husk, a mere shell, not know who you are, what you are, what you're doing. And I think we have a good word for that, which is burnt out, often. So you have to develop resources for yourself, and that's what I mean by being kind to yourself. You have to take time out for yourself in order to be able to give, to have something genuine to give to others. Um, there's a f- another phrase, there's lots and lots of wonderful phrases you find in Buddhist traditions. Another one phrase is caring for self, caring for other. You know, the genuine caring for other occurs because you care for yourself. You know, it arises out of you know, having compassion towards yourself, feeling kindly towards yourself, and, and generating those good resources within yourself, plus the psychologies which are based on them so that you have something to give and you also have something in times that are hard, that is there. That's what I mean by being kind to yourself. So, for example, if, as many people are, in something like caring professions, professional carers, meditation is such a wonderful practice and bringing them back to themselves after all this external stuff. Bringing them back to you know, what is going on for them in that? You know, stabilizing the mind, stopping the mind from you know, getting into hyperdrive, into planning always in the future and thinking about mistakes which have happened and everything else, but just being here in the moment. You know, just, just bathing, you know, just bathe in this moment for a while. We don't often do that, do we? We're kind of strung out in the future and thinking about the past and we don't not often in this moment bathing in this cool, clear moment where awareness can be. All the other stuff has to be done, and I don't deny that, planning and all that, but we don't always have to be in that mode. And a good resource is to do something like a regular sitting practice as a way of replenishing and sustaining. So that would be one kind practice to yourself. 
So meditation isn't just for you. (laughs) It's actually for others as well. It's not a self-centered, cut-off activity at all. In fact, as you've heard me say, really the only meaning of meditative practice is being out in the world. But in order to be out in the world, you've got to develop something here, in this practice. I think it's a wonderful word. I love the word practice. Because actually it means, you know, just like practicing anything. You're practicing for doing the real thing. (laughs) So as you're trying to develop things like, you know, this this empathetic, appreciative joy, gentle joy, and equanimity, well, it might be easier to achieve on the cushion than it is outside. So you're just practicing. (laughs) For hopefully taking it out one day. I don't know, does that help? Sorry, you had a um, things are as they are. I mean, again, the logic of what you said tonight is you can't argue with it. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful logic. But things are as they are. Mm. And I had this picture when you told us the story of you missing the tube. Mm. Uh, perhaps you were rushing, you were annoyed because you were rushing to a meeting mm. and you didn't show. And they said, well, John, he's a Buddhist, you know. And, and says everything. <laughs> we, we all live in this world where we have jobs, we have work, we have. The world is too much with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess some of us crave for the ideal, but the world gets in the way. You know? <laughs> Could you sort of say something about that? The reality of our life. Yes, I can say something about the reality of our life. You know, let me let me take an example again, a typical example. You're rushing to a meeting or something of importance, and you get stuck in a traffic jam. What can you do about it? Annoyance and anger and irritation doesn't help. It is as it is. It's a traffic jam. It's as it is. All you're doing is creating dukkha. And that's what I mean by it. You know, if it is as it is and you can't do anything about it, then all you have to do, in a sense, is come into a different relationship with what it is. What else opens up <laughs> in that situation? You know, it might be the traffic is so unmoving, you can sit there and do some practice. <laughs> Something like that. These are, these are real-life situations. I'm not saying that it's unimportant what you're going to or there's calls upon you in life which are meaningless and all that what I'm saying is if something is as it is how are you going to deal with it are you going to deal with it by negative emotions which just makes you feel rotten and actually if anybody's with you you'll make them feel pretty rotten too (laughs) because you'll like to spread it around Um, and it doesn't add one iota to the diminishment of dukkha in this world in fact it's just it's like pouring petrol on it on the flames of dukkha just makes it far, far worse. So what I'm saying is, in a sense, this is an insane reaction, and it's a reaction to a situation that could have sanity in it. And the sanity could be holding it with the mind of equanimity. You know, it's happened. I can't do anything about it. Yeah. I can make my apologies later for being late, but I still can't do anything about it. So what I'm saying is you deal with it as it arises 
And the negative emotions actually distance us from dealing with that situation because they're simply reactive and they actually cut us off from seeing other possibilities. Any other possibilities. Because the anger, the irritation, the annoyance, whatever it is, gets in the way. Now, we've all been there. I'm sure we've all been there in these situations. Uh, getting annoyed and angry at things that really profit ye not, I think is the word. <laughs> I don't know, does that help? I mean, because these are what, this is what is occurring in real life. And it can be from the little to the big. But if it's happened, then you have to deal with it as it is. You know, that's the expression. Not how you would like it to be. Because that's the difference between fantasy and reality. You know, we look at all sorts of situations and think, I'd like it to be different. I'd like the traffic to get moving so I can get there on time. Uh, I'd like somebody to telephone me on time because they said they were going to, and so on and so forth. I mean, I could go into loads of other versions of it. But if it's like that, and it really is irredeemable, you can't do anything about it, then you have to learn a way of coping with it. Not just coping with it, perhaps turning it into something positive. Yeah. So it's, it's whether we magnify Dukkha in our lives or whether we can diminish it. A lot of the time we seem to be almost hell-bent on magnifying it for ourselves and making life as miserable as possible. All because, actually, and the majority of irritations that we have in life are not vast tragedies, they're small events which impinge on our lives. They're not that. It's the kind of the warp and woof of ordinary life is actually a lot, a lot of irritations coming up about things that we can't do anything about. And this is, if you like, a way of acting. The equanimous mind is a way of acting in relationship to it as opposed to reacting. And that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's it. So, so kind of response, not an answer. Let's answer questions. So. Um, just as Jen here said, I mean, there's no, there's absolute logic in, in what you've talked about in the Buddha's teachings and in relation to sort of coping with life's inevitable suffering. But um, some people in life, Buddhist or not, just seem to sort of get by without any evidence showing of severe suffering or problem mm. to the day they die. And do you think some people are kind of born with a an intrinsic equanimity without having to cultivate it or so, some people think too much and make more out of their own suffering than other, others yeah but there's vast psychological differences I mean for one thing since we've been practicing mudita all day you know if you do come across people like that rejoice in their happiness yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean really do because it is often so unusual um, I mean, I know a few people like that who seem to get by very equably and very happily in life, no matter what happens to them. Even the death of a parent, this one particular person I know, took on board really quite easily, lightly. Didn't, I'm not saying didn't grieve, but grieved in a way that was a lot lighter than many of us do. Yes, I, su- I suppose so. What we, do, what we have to look at, though, is not necessarily what others are doing, but what we are doing. You know, this is where it really counts. I mean, often, as you know, I've been talking in generalizations about a lot of these psychological conditions. And it's really looking and seeing where they fit in our own lives, if they fit at all. They might not. You know, some of us might not fit. You know, it's looking at how it fits in your own life and where it is present, if it is present, and how you're going to deal with it in your own life. So it always comes back home. Buddhists thought it always comes back home. You know, 
if somebody is experiencing what you described, really do rejoice. And I don't mean that in a joking sense, really rejoice in it, because it's, it is, it's a wonderful thing to see, somebody who can cope with life. It's like seeing two people in a hospice, one who's really suffering and one who's going into the death process in a very gentle way. You know, and you kind of just feel your heart go out in two ways, at the suffering of the one and the, and the equanimity of the other, you know, in those situations. You know, so, but when it comes to ourselves, we've really got to look very closely at what is going on in our own minds. And the teachings are meant to be applied to our own lives. You know, so what is happening for us? There is a whole form of so-called Buddhas in Buddhism, which are called Pratyeka Buddhas, which actually are people who realise it for themselves. They don't need to hear the teaching. They don't need to you know, hear a Buddha or hear any of this stuff that we've been talking about. But that's not the majority of us. Yeah, often we need reminders and I think that's how I see a lot of the teachings it's not that we don't know it we just need reminding of it a lot of the time I see myself sitting up here as not giving you new information perhaps about the Buddhist traditions a bit but a lot of the psychology I think you know if you really examine yourselves yeah, you know it uh, often just need reminding uh, of what's happening one last question I'm very interested in what you were saying about um about the professional carers, that's 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 where I am, um, and and certainly I I find I've found that that my meditation practice has uh, has been tremendously beneficial in, in enabling me to do my job sometimes. Um, I I work as a nurse um, in a, a very large intensive care unit. Um, now. Human ingenuity has given us um, a vast amount of tools um, which, which can be used for great good. Um, and, and my position in, in the role that I have gives me tremendous opportunities to, uh, for, to be able to help people to express compassion. Um, But I often feel like that, that I do some harm as well. Um, I spend a great deal of my life battling against old age, sickness, death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do help people. Um, but sometimes, all too frequently, um, the system that I work in means that that I am engaged in prolonging suffering. And I just wonder whether you have some thoughts on squaring that circle. That's a difficult one. I really appreciate the situation you're in because I think we have got a situation now where we sometimes prolong life when it's, in a sense, reached its natural end and certainly for people to die with dignity and with, you know, without... You know, a tremendous amount of mental suffering often that's involved in this. But you do work within a system, within parameters, and you have to adhere to that. And really it's quite simple, my feeling about this is quite simple, is, is you just do your best. You can't do anything more and other than do your best and have a good heart as much as possible towards those who you're working with, which I'm sure you do. You know, 
where you can get into situations where you can talk about the system and the you know, the system you operate under, then say it, voice it if you can. Yeah, and, and, and talk about it. That's a something you can do. Yeah. Sometimes you can't do it because that's yeah, that again, that's unfortunately it's coming back to the original question. So that's the way it is at this moment in time. Doesn't mean it's absolutely intractable. It might be that the system shifts in, in, in time. I don't know. I mean I don't work in that profession. But you know, simply do one's best with a good heart, generating compassion and feeling and kindness and operative. You know, I don't think there's any walk of life where where we can do total good. It's the system that's failing often, not the individuals within it. It's often the systems. Things have to be done to the systems um, in order you know, to achieve the excellence that everybody talks about. Yeah. So I think I think I think it's important just to just to keep on trying every day to open your heart and to do your best. It's my simple you know, response. <laughs> okay. Well, we've been sitting for quite a long time, so I think we ought to have a break, and then perhaps um, I don't know who's been ringing the bell here. Could you ring the bell at about um, just before nine o'clock at five to nine? Yeah, and we'll do a sitting from 9 to 9.30 for those who've got the stamina. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.